Welcome to the Women of TBC podcast. You'll hear content from women's Bible studies and other women's events. For more information, visit templebiblechurch.org. Okay, guys, I want to introduce again Courtney Tate to you tonight. I'm glad that she's able to be with us live and in person. And um, I want to pray for her and, and turn, turn it over to Courtney. God, we just thank you so much for what you have taught us so far tonight, and we look forward to what you will teach us through your servant, Courtney. And God, would you just um, give her a voice, a strong voice, to share the things that you've put on her heart to share, and would you teach us, Father? Would you help us to listen and expect to be taught by you? We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Well, guys, I just couldn't get enough of y'all. I just had to come back for more. <laughs> but actually, I didn't get to teach this last week because um, God ordained that I would have the flu. So, <laughs> so I'm still kind of coming out of it. So if you could just say a silent prayer for me that I would have a voice and not go into a coughing fit. Um, I'm a whole lot better today. So um, it's good to be with y'all tonight. And I want to ask you, how many of you guys remember your first job? Do you remember Okay, good. So when you get a job normally, your boss will go over what is called a job description. And a job description is really important if you want to know how to please your boss, what's expected of you and what is not. Now, I got my first job in the summer between high school graduation and going off to college. And for some of you that know me, I know this will be a huge shock to you, but my first job was a pet store. <laughs> now, this pet store was not, I don't want y'all to get visions in your mind of PetSmart because it was not PetSmart. To a pet lover, it was like Eden rediscovered. And just to give you an idea, when we'd walk into the pet store, there would be open cages of puppies. We had pot-bellied pigs, we had kittens, we had rabbits, we had hedgehogs, we had everything. I mean, it was, I'm leaving things out. And so people would come into the store and walk around like it was a zoo. And I thought I'd hit the jackpot when they'd hired me. Now, the job description they gave me was to sell animals. That's it. They had other people in the back cleaning and feeding the animals. I was to sell animals, specifically dogs. So when I was there, though, I, I saw that there was a need for some things to be added to my job description. So when we weren't busy, I took it upon myself to love on all the animals that I could. And overall, my bosses didn't mind. But then <clears throat> I decided to add on even more to my job description. And I decided that there were certain dogs there that were older and they'd been there way too long and they desperately needed exercise. So I would put them on a leash, <laughs> leave the store and walk them around the perimeter of the mall. Yeah. So one day after doing this with a Rottweiler puppy that was had been there way too long, my boss was waiting for me at the entrance. And he looked at me very sternly and let me know that this was not what they had hired me for. So job descriptions are very important. And that's why God has been very faithful to lay out for us in this section of scripture what our just job descriptions are as members of the body of Christ. 
So we've been in Ephesians 1 through 3, and Paul's kind of laid out the story of the gospel, of all that Jesus Christ has accomplished and achieved for us, and how in Christ, this new creation of humanity is being formed and reconciled to him, people from all tribes, tongues, and nations. And it's as if Paul has kind of taken us on this helicopter tour of the gospel at 10,000 feet, where we've kind of seen the story of God laid out for us in all its majesty and glory. And in the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul has instructed the Ephesian believers. He has prayed for them and interceded for them. And now as we enter into Ephesians 4 through 6, we're going to see this shift in the tone and content of this letter. Paul is going to turn to emphatically urging them now to walk in light of these truths. It's as if Paul has landed the helicopter, handed us a hiking boot, some hiking boots and a backpack, pointed to a jungle and said, walk that way. This is boots on the ground, down to earth application of how the gospel impacts our daily lives. Now, this is so important because Paul lays out all that God has done freely while we were still sinners before he gets into these practical truths. This is not a list of things we do so that God will love us. It is the overflow of love that comes from us being freely loved and forgiven by Christ. So today we're going to be talking about unity in the church. And we're gonna be discussing what is needed to preserve this unity along with how we grow in unity through serving one another to maturity and fullness. And along the way, I hope that we can discuss some misconceptions that we actually have concerning unity. And in Ephesians three through six, Paul mentions three times being a prisoner for the Lord. And because Paul is willing to endure house arrest for the sake of the gospel, he can back up his urgent plea to the Ephesians that they, in verse one, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called. So, so far in the book of Ephesians, we have seen numerous root uses of the word walk. The word is taken from the Greek word peri and pateo, which means to live or follow. Now, in Ephesians 2, one through two, we see how we walked before Christ saved us. For you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And then in Ephesians 2.10, Paul describes the walk for which we are created. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And now in Ephesians 4.1-3, Paul lays out the walk for which we are called. And the word meaning to call is actually taken from the Latin word vocation. When Paul uses the word calling, he's not referencing what kind of professional ministry that we're gonna have, but he's referring to the mutual salvation and responsibility that we share as children of God. Our job or calling is to reflect our Savior. Now, when we're called to walk worthy, this is not us trying to earn God's favor. To walk worthy means that as Christians, we recognize what God deserves from us because he has freely bestowed on us his favor. The focus of this verse is not on our worth, but it's on the immense worth of our calling. And as a people, we should so esteem the love of God 
that we allow ourselves to be shaped by it. Now in verse three, we read that we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Now, the word unity is this word in our culture that may kind of lead us to roll our eyes or bring out the cynic in all of us. Because whenever we see something violent or hateful or divisive happen in our society, we see all the leaders, various leaders come on the news and urge us that we need to come together, that we need to be unified. And so we can all have this attitude when we hear this word of, yeah, I've heard that before. I mean, it sounds good. It's what we expect people to say in the moment, but we rarely see it executed or achieved successfully. So it just kind of becomes this throwaway word that we feel like we should say in a given moment, but it carries little weight. So in verse two, Paul lists some character traits that are necessary to maintain this unity in the church. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Now we see that the first qualities deal with our ego, and then it actually moves outward into how we relate to others. With all humility, it's translated to mean lowliness of mind, so it focuses on our thinking. Humility begins first in our mind. In the Greco-Roman world, humility and gentleness were not at all a prized quality. Pride was actually considered the more valued trait. What they admired was what they called the great-souled man. This was someone that was complete and self-sufficient in themselves. And humility was actually despised because it was viewed as a slave-like quality. So Paul actually holding up this quality as necessary for Christian living was actually a radical and foreign idea. And we can mistakenly think that humility means that we ignore our gifts, we ignore abilities that we have, that we just need to be passive and not do anything. But humility has nothing to do with our drive, energy, or ability, but in what we value. Humility is the deep awareness that who we are and what we possess in qualities is because of the work of God. It is a stubborn insistence to value others above ourselves. That is why he emphasizes this quality is so necessary for unity. It helps us to have healthy relationships and avoid the sinfulness of using the church to build up our ego instead of serving the church and building it up to maturity. And so where can we grow in humility? Well, I love how C.S. Lewis describes humility. He says, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man that he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you that of course he is a nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. 
And so I think an area of need for humility in our relationships as believers is the level of interest and curiosity that we share or show towards one another. All of us here have a testimony. Do you know the testimonies of the people you do life with? Or are you always looking for an opportunity to plug yourself and your accomplishments? Christianity is this relational religion and because of this, our lives reflect a deep desire and interest to know our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So a question to ask is, does my life reflect this sense of wonder towards people in my life? Do I want to know about their feelings and struggles and experiences? Now, with the word meek or gentleness, used interchangeably, we normally think of this. But gentleness or meekness, as it is many times said, it's not weakness. It's actually defined as strength under control. There's nothing dainty about it at all. And I love what Jonathan Edwards wrote in his diary. He said, a virtue which I need in a higher degree to give a beauty and luster to my behavior is gentleness. If I had more of an air of gentleness, I should be much mended. <coughs> and I mean, it's amazing to me. If we go back and read this verse in full, it says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all Humility and gentleness. Not all boldness or zeal or strength. We've kind of been reading all these lofty chapters about God and and we're kind of seeing in Ephesians it just begins to siphon down into ordinary Christians living ordinary lives exuding the aroma of humility and gentleness. And why is gentleness important? because Jesus described himself in this way. Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 says, I am gentle and humble in heart. And Jesus showed that strength and gentleness in two ways. One, in the way he defended others <coughs> and the truth, and two, in the way that he forgave others rather than retaliate against them. And Paul then goes on to say that we are to act with patience, bearing with one another in love, And patience is the ability to endure difficulties in life and annoyances over time. The word used in the Greek translates literally to long-tempered. It is being long-suffering towards aggravating people in our life. (laughs) I had to write this, you guys. I just need some empathy here for a second. This is such an important quality in unity because there is no way we can live together in peace without on some level learning to put up with each other. We don't bear with people we love being around. This verse is referencing the difficult people in our lives. So what is the motivator for this kind of attitude? Well, the fact that Jesus has shown us these same qualities Do we understand that Jesus himself bears with our sins? And he doesn't do so begrudgingly. It was his joy and delight to extend to us this grace and patience and forbearance. We are to remember how we are loved by Christ because it is the fuel to how we will love 
in our relationships. And one mistake we can make when we read these passages on unity is to mistake a culture of niceness for unity. We can easily read this text and go, okay, I get it. I'm supposed to be nicer to people, Courtney. But when we look at verse three, it says, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. We are to be unified by being peacemakers. Now, when we send an ambassador over to another country to work out some sort of peace treaty or agreement, the very fact that they are doing this implies there is a war or a conflict going on. Being a peacemaker means you are honest when things are not right. We don't act like things are okay and call that being at peace. In Ezekiel 13.10, Ezekiel warned against those who mislead my people saying peace when there is no peace. And when the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash. A peacemaker is also willing to endure pain and be a fighter in the name of bringing about peace. If we have been wrong, there is pain in owning it and being genuinely sorrowful. And if we've been hurt, there's a risk that it will go poorly or will be misunderstood when we go to that person. Being a fighter does not mean that we take on every offense or slight. Romans 14, 19 tells us to pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. And we may strive towards making peace, but it may always be a one-sided, it may always be one-sided and never a full reality. Romans 12, 18 tells us to, if possible, so far as it depends on you to live peaceably with all. And James 3, 17 tells us the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Fighting for peace is never done to preserve our ego, image, or reputation. Those who fight for peace wear the clothing of gentleness and wisdom. So we've learned from scripture that unity is not some blissful state of kumbaya. It's more work than mere niceness. And it's not something that God wants us to simply do because it's best practices of a church. In verse four through six, we learn there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We are to walk in unity as a people of God because the origin of our unity is embedded in the work of the Trinity. Each of those things listed is connected with one of the persons of the Trinity. Now we see this word one throughout this section and it might lead you to kind of think, well see, that's what's wrong with the church. We're all one, but we don't live like it. Every single one of us can fall into the temptation that it would just be better if everyone thought like us, believed like we do. There wouldn't be any conflict no relational difficulty, there'd be no need for Facebook. And, you know, we'd think, oh, that's the book that influenced you, me too. That's the worship style you like, me too. It would all be so much tidier if there was uniformity. 
And uniformity can be a lot easier. But as believers, we're called to something much deeper, and it's unity. And after Paul speaks to our oneness being tied to the work of the Trinity, we can't miss the next verse after verse six. Verse seven says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. It's like Paul is reading our minds and saying, just in case you think you should all be the same and have the same gifts as everyone else, I'm going to remind you that we're all different with diverse gifts according to the work of grace within us. And I think about this diversity and I think about my marriage. If Dave was exactly like me, what would it mean for us to be one? Nothing. I'd never have to work at trying to understand him. I'd never have to see things from his point of view. I'd never have to accept him. I'd never have to empathize with his feelings or perspective. Everything would be just as I want it to be, and my life would be ease-filled. And some of you might be thinking, that sounds really nice. <laughs> but this is why many of us prefer the idea of uniformity, and we confuse it with unity. Because in our sinfulness, we actually prefer uniformity because it's easier. And we mistakenly believe that an ease-filled life is where we will locate our deepest joy. But unity requires something of us that uniformity doesn't. And let's look at Philippians 2, 3 through 4 to understand. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And we don't naturally flow in this direction. That's why unity requires that we must be willing to die. Die to our preferences and comforts. Die to desires within us that conflict with the work of the gospel. Unity is going to cost us something. And we're unified when our interests are focused on the gospel being spread in us and among us. And we need everyone's gifts being used in very different ways for this to occur. And for the sake of time, I'm going to need to do some summarizing so I don't go over. In verses 8 through 11, Paul goes on to explain by quoting Psalm 68 that when Christ ascended and was exalted, he gave gifts to men, and these gifts were those who lead in the church. Now, these leaders are to exercise their gifts in the church. Why? What is the purpose of the church having these leaders? <clears throat> well, in verses 12 through 14, it says to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now he is explaining why God gives leaders to the church to equip the body of believers for ministry. And this verse is one of the most essential aspects of biblical doctrine when it comes to the church because it just throws a stick of dynamite into the idea that a select few in the church are responsible for the work of ministry and all the rest of us are just there to consume and absorb. In verses 13 through 14, we find out that each of us is called to some form of ministering to others in order to build the body up and to bring about unity and to mature 
one another. This is such an important distinction. We're not called to use our gifts to prop ourselves up like the people did in the Tower of Babel when it says they wanted to make a name for themselves. We are to use our gifts to grow, edify, and mature the church. And there's always gonna be the temptation to glorify ourselves. That's just always going to be a battle that we continually have to lay before the Lord. But we must commit to putting those desires to death when they rise up in our hearts. Now, how many of you have seen this movie? It's such an old movie. I know Amy has, she's such a movie person. I haven't seen it in forever. But this movie, for those of you that are not familiar and need to be reminded, um, Mr. Holland dreams of becoming this famous composer, but those dreams never come true, and instead he ends up being a high school orchestra teacher. And after budget cuts, the music program at the school ends, and it shows him in his office packing his things up and kind of leaving the school dejected. And he notices this clapping and chanting in the auditorium and he walks in and everyone's chanting his name. And one girl that he had tried to teach the clarinet to struggled throughout the whole time. She's now the governor. And she says this quote, she says, Mr. Holland, we know that you never became the famous composer you dreamed of being, but don't you see it today? Your great composition is what you did with us. Mr. Holland, look around you. We are your great opus. We are the music of your life. And I think about our own church. God is the composer. We are his music sent out into the world to share his love and our gifts in service to the kingdom of God. And why is this so important that we do not neglect our gifts and our role in ministering to others? Well, in verses 14 through 16, it says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And in my previous talk, the passage was addressing the importance of knowing the Lord. And in this one, Paul exhorts them to grow up in the Lord so that we will not be tossed around. Now the sea is used a lot as imagery in the Bible to reference false doctrine or a lack of wisdom and discernment. And what can seem beautiful and alluring to us can also hold this power and danger that we'll never be able to control or tame. Now in verse 15, we read that we mature and grow by speaking the truth in love. And I love how Paul combines these two qualities because many times when we have been hurt or sinned against in the church, it's because one of these was missing. I'm so thankful for people in the church who uphold and deeply desire God's truth to be maintained. But sometimes we can do this with an extreme lack of love. And others of us can make the opposite mistake. We deeply desire for people to feel loved and cared for in the church, but might at times be willing to sacrifice God's truth in the name of being caring. John Stott says it like this, both of these tendencies are unbalanced and unbiblical. 
Truth becomes hard if it is not softened by love, and love becomes soft if it is not strengthened by truth. Now, <clears throat> when Amy comes to you and asks if you'd be willing to speak for Bible study, this is normally how it goes down, at least for me. I normally have a little bit of a mini panic attack, and then I go and I read through that particular book in the Bible. And you start looking at sections that you maybe feel really passionate about. Maybe it's been a special passage for you in your own life. And you kind of start to form this mental list of what you would prefer to speak on. Now, I remember reading chapter four on unity and thinking, well, that's a struggle for me. I don't need to teach that. And I had my little list and I gave it to Amy pretty quickly. And the minute I did, I immediately felt the Holy Spirit just saying like, well, that was pretty controlling of you. <laughs> By sticking to the passages that I felt comfortable with. And I texted Amy back oh, with clenched teeth. I released it for her to decide what passages I got. So Amy got back to us and gave us a teaching schedule. And what passages do you think she assigned to me? You got it, this one. So God definitely wanted me to learn more about unity. And the idea of being connected to and serving the church has been a very, very slow growth for me. And it's still very, very much in process. And growing up, I saw a lot of church brokenness. I walked away from the church emotionally in junior high and high school and then physically in college. And after Jesus intervened in my life during college, I got back into church, but I bounced around a lot. I knew I needed to be in church as a Christ follower, but I didn't really understand why. And when Dave and I first moved here for him to be one of the youth pastors, we've been married six months, and I really had no ministry involvement to speak of. And here I was a pastor's wife. And so our female college leaders were maybe thinking they were getting someone who would pour into them, mentor them. The junior high girls are thinking I'm going to pursue them, get to know them. And I had no idea what I was doing whatsoever. So I just kind of balked at the whole thing. And for several years, I remained pretty removed from any involvement at TBC. I would say that church was very much something I did on Sunday and apart from different functions that I needed to be at, I kind of stayed under the radar. See, my default is I can do Lone Ranger Christianity really well. I like spending time with God by myself. And if I'm honest, I can actually be tempted to see this as more pristine and the ideal. Church represented awkward and messy, and let's just face it, just weird sometimes. <laughs> But God is never done with us, and God began to work on breaking and humbling me over how I view the church. And one week in a speaker for one of our youth events came in and told this simple, simple story to illustrate a point. And it was like a bomb just exploded inside me. In that one moment, I was just utterly convicted in my sin. And the story went like this, I wanna share it with y'all. What if your husband had a friend 
and he called you one day and he invited your husband to dinner. And then this friend said, I have one condition though. Can't bring your wife because I can't stand her. How's your husband gonna react? I hope he would be upset because to offend the wife is to offend the husband. They're a unit, a package deal. And we cannot say we love Jesus while hating his bride. The church and Jesus come as a unit. They're a package deal. And so one of the most important chapters on unity is found in John 17, where we get to peer in and hear a conversation between Jesus and the Father. And in John 17, 20 through 21, Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now this is the only time where I know of that Jesus refers to all future believers in a prayer and he prays for unity. It's as if he looked down the pipeline of history and he saw church politics conflicting personalities, strong-headed leaders, church worship styles, and said, yeah, I better pray for unity. And look at the last phrase. Why is unity important? Because without it, the world will not believe that Jesus was sent by the Father. So disunity among us leads to disbelief. Thank you.